Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Roney. Today we are reading the Torah portion of Bihar. It is May 11th and the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Iyar. This week's Torah portion starts with the commandment of Shemitah, of celebrating the seventh year. Just like we have a Shabbat every seventh day, we have Shemitah, a sabbatical year, every seventh year. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the significance of the seventh year. The messages it teaches us as a nation, but also as a people. And it has additional commandments, like supporting our brothers and sisters when they lose their property. What is commanded to us? How are we supposed to act when our brothers and sisters lose their means of livelihood? How are we supposed to go out of our way to help them? And I'm going to tie these two stories, these two narratives from this week's story portion, the seventh year, and helping our brothers and sisters was the ongoing war in Ukraine. I know that for most people, it's a postscript. For most people, the war in Ukraine is something that they see in the back of the newspaper, even if that. For most people, the war in Ukraine has dragged out so long, it's not news anymore. It's a conflict in a different part of the world. But for me, it's something I live every day because I work with Jewish refugees from Ukraine. And so I'm going to continue talking about this war and the lessons it teaches us. Chazal teaches that all the wars in the world are meant for the Jewish people. We're meant to learn from them. We are meant to take notice of them and draw lessons for ourselves. And I think this is very important for us as Jews to be mindful of this war because we have responsibility towards the refugees, but also because... This war is going to touch the entire world. It cannot be left to the politicians to decide. And we have to be mindful of it. We have to be involved in, and keep track of what's happening and draw the lessons we need to draw for our self-improvement because we also affect what's happening in that part of the world through our behavior, through the lessons we learn and the actions we take. Just like during the Holocaust, the world stood by idly. We cannot stand by idly and not care. So we will be back after these messages. Stay tuned. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom! I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. So as we speak of the Shemitah, the seventh year, the Torah teaches that just like every seventh day of the week is Shabbat, 
and we cannot do work. We cannot do creative work, creative activity. But rather, the seventh day is supposed to be a day of rest, not because we get、um, tired, but because we need to learn that life is not just about progress. Life is also about taking stock of what we have accomplished, recognizing our accomplishments, and accepting things as they are. Accepting our accomplishments, resting before we can go on. Otherwise, life becomes a hamster wheel. So the seventh day of the week is all about recognizing achievement, celebrating achievement, celebrating what we have accomplished, and just being, not doing. Becoming human beings, not human doings. What a relevant message for our days. In a similar way, vein, this week's parsha teaches us that every seventh year is a Shabbat. The Shabbat Shabbaton is Shmita, a year that we take off to be human beings, to engage in Torah study, to engage in self-development. Every seventh year, people were supposed to stop agricultural work and go on to invest in other ways that they can develop themselves, and that's one way that Torah shows the. Importance of self-development and self-engagement and self-awareness, not just work, work, work. It was very, very exciting and emotional to see at the beginning of this year how farmers in Israel celebrated the Shemitah. They had these whole gatherings where the day before the start of the new year, they would go into the fields with music, and then. Just before the start of the new year, they would celebrate coming out of the fields, marking it with an occasion, marking this coming out of the fields with an occasion. Now, after seven sets of seven years, we have the fiftieth year, and that's the Yovel. It's the Jubilee year, and the Jubilee year is just like Shemitah. People don't work the land, and it was also a very special time when every single person who sold their family estate. To somebody else, would get it back. And this law is significant because it means that nobody has rights to the land except the people who got it as a gift of God. When the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, it was divided between the tribes through lots, and then within every tribe, every family received a family estate, and this is their family estate forever. If a person sells their family estate, Because they're destitute, they're really only leasing it until the jubilee year, and then on the jubilee year, every family estate would return to the family, and that's significant for two reasons. First of all, every family that would understand that this is their estate, this is their family heritage, this land is special to their family, but also it's a gift of God, and you can't take a gift of God. And be careless with it. So, even if they sold it, it would come back to them.、Um, and then the Torah asks a really interesting question. The Torah asks, "What's going to happen when the two years when we cannot work the land, we can't work the land on Shmita, and we can't work the land of, on the Jubilee year? What are we going to eat?" And the Torah doesn't usually. Ask people's questions. The Torah usually gives an answer without asking the question, but here the Torah does ask the question as if it gets into our minds, 
into our shoes and ask the question that any person would ask. And there is an answer given by the Noam Elimelech, Rabbi Elimelech of Lizhensk, who was a very special person, and together with his brother, Rabbi Zusha, was one of the great Hasidic masters of the first generations. Now, just to understand who Rabbi Elimelech was and to underline the story, Rabbi Elimelech and Rabbi Zusha were actually fairly destitute, and they spent many years of their life in what's called galut. They would voluntarily go out into the streets, onto the roads, and travel from place to place, and basically live of whatever um, gifts they were given, eat by people's houses. It's a way of living without being attached to anything materialistic, and taking many insults because people who are destitute come to places and they're not respected. So it was a way for these two brothers to work on their self-development. There are many stories about Rabbi Zushi and Rabbi Elimelech coming to different towns and being insulted, being hurt, even being thrown to jail. And they were both very, very poor. So now, taking this into account, Rabbi Elimelech of Lezhansk writes, why does the Torah ask, what are we going to eat on the seventh year? He says, the Torah doesn't usually ask questions, but here it specifically does. And the answer is that from the beginning of the world, God created the world and he created the blessing, the flow of kindness, the flow of money, the flow of food, the flow of everything that we need to sustain the world. God sustains the world every single second, just like God creates the world every single second. If God puts us into the world, then God also feeds and sustains us here. It's axiomatic. Just like as you take an employee, if you take an employee into the business and you put them on payroll, you pay them a salary every month. It's just automatic. If we are on God's payroll, in this world, if he creates us for another moment, he also creates the sustenance for us to eat every single moment. And this is how it works when everything goes normal. But then the times when we spoil our own sustenance, when people spoil the flow of blessing and kindness from God to themselves, how do people spoil it? People spoil it by not having faith. When people don't have faith in God and in God's ability to sustain them, then they spoil this flow of sustenance and blessing. And then it is as if God needs to reestablish the flow so people can get it. So this is what happens in this week's Torah portion. He asks the question, the Torah asks the question because by asking the question of what are we going to eat, people display lack of faith. If God gives us these two commandments of Shemitah and Yovel of the seventh year and the Jubilee year, then obviously he's going to create a mechanism for us to have what to eat. And that mechanism is a greater amount of blessing in the sixth year so that it is enough for the three years, the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth. That's the mechanism. And if the Torah gives us this commandment that it should be axiomatic that God put into the world a mechanism for us to be able to eat, to be sustained, 
with this commandment because the commandment comes from the will of God and God obviously understands our needs at least as well as we do because he's creating us with these needs but when people start asking questions well how is going to how are we going to survive this mitzvah then by asking the question and showing lack of faith we spoil this flow of sustenance to ourselves and then it's as if God has to go out of his way and create a new channel of sustenance that can sort of overcome our lack of faith. Just think of your child. You feed your child breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. So what would happen if your child will start asking questions and being unsure, what is he going to eat tomorrow? What would you do? You now have to remind your child, you have to show your child you have to rid up all your efforts to ensure that they understand that they're going to be fed. It's the same thing here. God has to sort of work twice, redouble his efforts to ensure that we have the flow of faith and we have the flow of sustenance. And this is so applicable to every single one of us because people constantly ask questions. How can I keep God's commandments? How can I keep commandments of the Torah? In today's day and age it doesn't work it's not convenient I have all these needs in the real world and they sort of run with the requirements of the real world so how do we make sure that this world and the mitzvahs don't contradict each other and he gives us an answer God created the world God created the mitzvot the needs of the real world and the mitzvot, the commandments, come from the same God. They can never be contradictory. If there's a situation that God puts you in, it has to be aligned with God's commandments, with God's will. They cannot contradict each other. It just doesn't happen. And the more faith we have, and the more we understand that, then everything is streamlined. Everything works together because that's how it's supposed to work together. There's one flow of blessing from God and the same God that gives you life and that gives you the situations you're put in is also the same God that gave you the commandments. But when we lose that faith, when we stop believing that and understanding that, that's when we run into problems. That's when we break this seamless, streamlined flow of blessing from us to God. And then we create situations that need to be solved where God has to, as if, create external channels, alternative channels of blessing for us. That's problem solving. The biggest, fastest, best way to solve all of our problems is faith. Faith in the God who gives us life and sustenance every single moment. And nothing is too big too complicated for him. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 
This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany is but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. Hi, welcome back. So this past Monday, May 9th, was celebrated in Russia as Victory Day. Germans capitulated in World War II on May 8th, and this is where when um, the Victory Day celebrated all over the world, but Russians had to have their own day of victory, and that day of victory is May 9th. Every year it is celebrated with a grand parade, a military parade, obviously. Russians have a story that to keep world peace, a supreme value for the former Soviet Union and for today's Russia, you have to have a strong fist and a strong military. And so they showcase their military, including their missiles and their nuclear weapons on the Red Square every May 9th. Now, this year, May 9th, was different. It was different because many of us who are involved in the war in Ukraine, who work with the refugees, were very concerned that May 9th would be a turning point in this war, that Putin would use that day to announce mobilization and to step up a notch from what is called inside Russia a special military operation into a full-scale war. Thankfully, thankfully that did not happen, but you may, we may, cannot know that can come later. But May 9th, thank God, passed peacefully. And I want to talk about this date for a minute, especially as someone who was born in the former Soviet Union and who is very connected to the memory of Second World War. Most of my peers who grew up in the West, especially the Jewish ones, were brought up on the memory of the Holocaust. Their grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They came to America from Europe, and they had the stories of Auschwitz, the numbers on their hands. And so for most Jews in America, World War II is really connected to the memory of the Holocaust. But that's not how we Russians grew up. In Russia, we grew up on the memory of the Great Patriotic War, This is how World War II was called in the former Soviet Union. The Great Patriotic War did not start in 1939 like World War II. It did not start with the invasion of Poland by Germany. Why? Because Poland was divided between Russia and Germany by Molotov and Ribbentrop. Instead, the Great Patriotic War started in 1941 when Germany invaded Russia. And it did not end on May 8th, like for the rest of the world, it ended on May 9th. The Great Patriotic War, we were told, was the time when the Nazis tried to conquer the Great Soviet Union, and the Russian soldiers were the ones to drive Nazis out of former Soviet Union and then rid the world of the Nazi evil. The contribution of the Western countries was not really recognized. It was a postscript to the Great Patriotic War. Now, this wasn't just a history book story for somebody like me. My family lived 
through World War II. My grandfather, Evgeny Niederman, was a soldier in the Red Army. First, he was a motorcycle soldier fighting in the Battle for Moscow, and then he was wounded, and after he recovered, he became a tankist. And with his tank, he participated in the liberation of Poland, including the city of Lodz. He was then wounded for the second time and sent back home. This is where he met Victory Day in a hospital in Russia. The rest of my family also participated in other ways. My grandmother on my mother's side was evacuated from Kiev with her family on trains heading to Central Asia just days ahead of Babi Yar. My other grandmother was evacuated from Moscow into Siberia together with her family. Evacuated is really <coughs> a whitewashed name for being a refugee. My mother, grandmother shared that in Siberia, the entire family, her, her husband, and her little son had one pair of boots, so they couldn't go out of the house at the same time. In minus 40 degrees, she had to walk five miles every day to buy a bottle of vodka. Then she could then walk some more to trade for bread to bring back to her home. She and her family were bombed on these evacuation trains. And after giving birth during one of the stops, she would jump off the train during bombings and cover her son with her body. These are the stories that I grew up on. The aftermath of World War II was huge poverty, and both of my parents grew up in the post-war years in this poverty where the bath, the family bath, was their bed, and where both of them started out living in communal flats where three, four, five, ten families shared the same apartment with every family having one room in the apartment and sharing the kitchen and the bathroom. Just think of that. This is a story of World War II that I was brought up on. And then May 9th always signified the heroism of the Russian people, the Soviet people during the war, and the great sacrifice they made to rid the world of Nazism. What was not shared was that the Soviet army really used the soldiers as cannon meat. 20 million Soviets died during World War II, and many of the soldiers died for one reason, because the generals did not care about their lives. So they're using strategy to save soldiers' lives. Russians just threw the soldiers at the enemy, not caring about the lives at all. And the Russian strategy has always been, don't spare the soldiers, women will give birth to more. Unfortunately, this year, May 9th, has been taking to its extreme. It has always been a day of Soviet propaganda with the tanks and the speeches, the stuffy glory of the Soviet nation, things that people like me never believed in. But today, this year, it was used by Putin to justify his war on Ukraine as Putin is committing the same kind of atrocities that the Germans committed during World War II. He's ironically using anti-fascist rhetoric to justify what he's doing. 
as the Russians are bombing cities like Mariupol and killing innocent Ukrainians. They are telling the world that they're trying to denazify Ukraine and liberate it from Western influences. The day that for many Russian people was a holy day when they remembered their dear ones, the members of their family who fell during World War II, has been contaminated by the evil of Putin's rhetoric when he is using this day and abusing it for his justification of war crimes. And I think it's really important to understand that this kind of nationalism, where people fight and kill because they have the toxic ego of nationalism, is horrible. Now, I'm not against nationalism, and especially in today's day and age, when nationalism and universalism are put against each other. I definitely believe that every nation should be proud of its country, proud of its land, connected to its land. We're not one great do of people where nations don't matter. They do. And certainly for the Jewish people, the connection to the land of Israel, the love of the land of Israel is supremely important. There is a holy connection between the Jewish people and their land. And it is underlined in this week's Torah portion, which is all about our connection to the land of Israel. But there's a place where nationalism and connection to your land becomes toxic. And this is when it becomes all about the national ego. Every time things become egocentric, they become toxic. There's great difference between being connected to your land, loving your land, loving your motherland, being proud of your people, celebrating the achievements of your nation. This is amazing. But when it becomes about the ego, the greatness of this nation over that nation, the greatness of this people over that people, the concentration on grabbing land from other nations in order to glorify your own, this is when it becomes toxic. And this is the great message of the Shemitah, the seventh year. Yes, the land of Israel is holy. Yes, it is given to the Jewish people. Yes, it is given to us to celebrate and cultivate and enjoy and take pride in. But it is not ours in an egocentric way. It's not because we're a great nation that we got it. It's not because we can grab it from other people that we got it. This land belongs to God. It's a gift from God to the Jewish people, and it is appreciated as a gift. And we always need to remember that it is not ours. It is not our achievement that makes this land great. It is our connection to God that enables us to enjoy this land. And when the Jewish people don't live up to the expectations of God, unfortunately, we have seen that twice, they were expelled from the land of Israel. Because the land of Israel is a fragile gift that cannot stand any abuse. And when people have this mindfulness, they're not going to go out to kill other people mindlessly to grab their land and then use patriotic rhetoric to cover up. That's something we have to be very careful about. And in the next session, in the next part of this 
conversation, I'd like to share some stories I'm hearing from people coming out of Ukraine. They're extraordinary and touching. So stay tuned for the last part of today's show. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. portion not only just talks about the Shemitah year, but it talks about what happens when our brothers and sisters become destitute. It commands us to support and uplift our brothers and sisters when they're destitute, to make sure that we can bring them back to a level of normalcy and and a level of functionality when they can come back to becoming equal members of society, productive members of society, and feel normal again. And I find this teaching to be so, so relevant to the stories I'm seeing coming out of Ukraine. I work for an organization called Vadat Salah, the Committee for Ukrainian Refugees. And in, as part of my work, because I speak Russian, I meet Ukrainian refugees every single day. And I see the stories every single day. These people, Jewish Ukrainian refugees, are proud people. They don't like being helped. They don't like asking for help. They are self-reliant, self-sufficient, and usually they've been out there helping other people. So being in a situation where they're in a new country with just one or two bags of clothing, where they don't have anything, they don't know the language, they usually don't have the kind of jobs that are prominent and prevalent in Israel. And they basically have to start their lives from scratch, where for the most part, it's mothers with children or grandmothers with women and their children, when most of the men cannot leave Ukraine, puts people into situations where they're truly destitute. And it's our job as a people to come together and support them in every way possible. So I'd like to share some stories I've come across over the past few weeks just to show you what it means to come out of Ukraine so we can appreciate the need to help our brothers and sisters. This week I spoke to a woman. Let's call her Irina. She came from the city of Odessa with her disabled father and her mother who underwent three surgeries in the past few months. She also has two little girls. Let's call them Anna and Sveta. Anna is eight and Sveta is five. They came all together from Odessa after being urged by friends and family in Israel and America. When the first bombs fell on Odessa, the mother put the two little girls in the closet 
because that was the safest place she could find for them in the house. It reminded me of stories from the Holocaust and from Schindler's List, when people would hide in closets from Nazi searches. But here, the mother had to put the two little girls into the closet to save them from Russian bombshells. Although Odessa is a city at the shore of the Black Sea, the mother was afraid that the city would be cut off from fresh water supply. So she would fill out the bath with fresh water so that the family would have what to drink in case there was no more water supply. So after a few weeks of these, friends and family talked her into going to Israel. It wasn't easy picking up with two little girls, a disabled father and a sick mother, but the family did that. They picked up, they took minimal stuff, minimal clothes, put them into bags, and spent two weeks traveling through Moldova, then Romania, then coming to Israel was really nothing. We met them at a hotel, our organization met them at the hotel the day they arrived, shortly before Purim. We welcomed them with the Mishloch Manot. We arranged Shabbat hospitality for them so they could visit with the family that speak Russian and learn more about Israel, learn more about what it's like to live in Israel with somebody who actually lives here to spend a Shabbat. And then various organizations helped them in many ways. The Jerusalem Music Academy took the girls in one of the girls plays flute, and the other one recently started playing a violin. The child who brought the flute with her was taken in to learn music for free, and the other child, the younger girl, was given a violin as a gift. The music academy helped them find housing and even bought clothing. Members of the music academy helped the girls, some of them taking the money out of their pocket. Our organization as well has given the girls multiple chances to showcase their music ability and to give them a sense of normalcy. And the family is so appreciative, but it is so hard for them to accept this. Then this last Friday, I went to get a manicure to get my nails done. The woman sitting opposite me, the manicurist, was clearly not a manicurist. As soon as she started working, I saw that she was not a professional. So we struck up a conversation, and it turned out that she came from Ukraine just a month and a half ago, that she is a psychologist by training, and she spent the past several years working at her city university, taking care of the students' needs. But now that she's here in Israel, she has to make ends meet. So she works as a nail uh, specialist in a nail salon. This is what she knows how to do, and she can do that without speaking Hebrew. So she does that to feed herself, her mother, and her husband. As we spoke about her travel, she told me that when they came out of the city of Kharkov, which was bombed, they felt a sense of relief. After spending days and days and days under Russian shelling, hiding in the basement of the house and then in the metro, in the underground, every little sound makes her jump. Everything that flies over, even a bird, reminds her of Russian planes. And then coming out of that city and coming to the city of Dnipro, which is more quiet, and then from there traveling to Romania was a long, longer deal. But coming to Romania and coming to the Sochnut, the Jewish Agency Hotel, she was struck not by the food, not by the accommodations, not by the rooms. She was struck by the flowers 
on each table in the dining room. Not only were they fed three meals a day, not only were the refugees housed in a nice hotel, but somebody took the time to think, to put flowers on every single table. It is that level of care that brought tears to her eyes. And from there, she felt helped every step of the way, every step of the way somebody took care of their needs. When this family arrived in Israel, they already have two sons in Israel. Each one of the spouses has a son from a previous marriage in Israel. So each one of the sons told their co-workers about the parents arriving. And the co-workers of the two places of work came together to bring money and food and clothing for the new arrivals. The mother was so emotional. She's not used to receiving gifts. She's used to helping other people. But the son said, Mom, you cannot refuse this. They're giving this from the pure heart. They really want to help. They want to be a part of your story. You cannot refuse these gifts. And so she was forced almost to take the money and to take the things that were given to her as hard as it was. And she was telling me this with tears in her eyes, how thankful she was to the uh, other Jewish people, to people of Israel, to the Jewish agency for being so mindful, so weird, so thinking, so kind to her and her family. And finally, I want to share the third story, which is quite, quite incredible. This story is about a woman that's called her Svetlana, who grew up in the city of Zaporozhye. She grew up in a regular Ukrainian family, married and have five children. About six months ago, she found out that she had been adopted. Her adoptive mother told her that she was adopted and that she was Jewish. In the hospital, the mother was told that the child is Jewish, but one of the nurses, and the mother said, that's fine, I don't care. The adoptive mother and Svetlana started searching for the biological mother, and the biological mother was found in the city of Netanya in Israel. The connection was made, and it was arranged for the biological mother to come to Israel in late February. I'm sorry, to come to Ukraine in late February, and so she did. She arrived in Ukraine, and she arrived in the city of Zaborozhye, and a big banquet was arranged for the reunification of the family. But on the day of this special dinner, a war started. Yes, the mother arrived in Ukraine a day before the war. So now, after hugs and kisses and tears, they had to get the biological Israeli mother out of the country. So they went to the supermarket, packed some bags with food, and decided to travel all together, the biological mother and the daughter with her husband and five kids, to take the biological mother to the border with Romania and at last spend that day together to get to know each other. But as the family traveled together, it was decided that they're going to go to Israel too. So that day, the entire family crossed over from Ukraine into Romania, and today the entire family is here in Israel. Within six months, a woman went from being an Ukrainian to finding out that she's a Jew to coming to Israel with her entire family. We met this family at a seminar for newly arriving families where they learn about life in Israel, 
where they'll learn about Judaism and they'll learn about the Torah and commandments and what it means to be a Jew. And she was so thankful for the opportunity to be in Israel with her family, to be in a place that is safe, and to be sponsored for this wonderful experience of learning more about her heritage so that her children can learn about their heritage. This is just some of the work that is being done on behalf of the Ukrainian Jews. And I want you to hear about these stories so that you can understand that this far off war is very, very personal for many, many people. It was a pleasure being with you on the show today, and I hope to see you again next week. Bye bye now from News from the Torah. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 